Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you are a God that uh, lays out and makes things clear that even as we look at these mysteries, these are things that you uh, deemed necessary to reveal and uh, that uh, we would understand how even in this time period we're supposed to act as we wait for you to come in your kingdom, uh, the Lord to come back for a second time. So, uh, Lord, we pray that as we uh, look at your word this evening, give us a mind to understand and uh, be able to think through uh, what we're looking at here this evening. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. There are times as a pastor that I get a workout. I um, was reading an article yesterday and somebody said that, you know, they have, sometimes you call the pastor's uh, place of doing work the um, the office and really it should be designated a study because that's what it really should be uh, and uh, understanding what uh, <clears throat> the word is sometimes it takes a quite a bit of study and when it comes to this parable and the ones next week we're still up you want to fade to black on the that screen um and the one next week are, are ones of parables that are very difficult to interpret because it's hard to comprehend exactly why the Lord gave them. And it takes a little bit to kind of unpeel some of the things that are here, even though this one has an explanation. The two very short ones I'm going to look at next week, you know, there's multiple interpretations, and it's because there's no explanation, and you're, you're kind of going, okay, let's guess at this. Um, but uh, this one, I will admit, is a little bit tougher uh, than most, but uh, hopefully by the end you'll understand why the Lord gave this uh, parable, why he deemed it necessary uh, to share this. As we have in the notes there, the introduction, these parables, Matthew 13, are communicating the mysteries of the kingdom. You go, why are they mysteries? Because when you read the Old Testament, you thought when the Lord was coming, he was coming to save and to be sovereign, both at the same time. You have all these prophecies that they, are, they look like they can be taken together. We now step back and look at them and go, well, no, he came one time and he came a second time. But the Jews were only looking at Jesus coming one time, the Messiah. But they did not understand that though this king would come, he wasn't coming to rule, he was coming to save, and then he was going to come on a second occasion uh, to be king. And so what you have is that the Lord is now revealing, I'm here this time, but understand I'm going away, and until the kingdom comes, there's this gap that is a mystery on what you should be doing or what uh, may happen during that time frame. The things revealed, uh, as you see in your notes, were not communicated in the Old Testament till now. He is giving them to them. The kingdom has been, and in the quotes there, is delayed due to the reaction of the nation in Matthew chapter 12. And we've gone and spent a lot of time on that, but the nation of Israel rejects the Lord. As you read the story as I was this week, you get to the end of Matthew and you find out they really reject him because they yell, crucify him, crucify him. They're looking to get rid of him and have him uh, removed completely. And they even say this, as I was reading Matthew chapter 26, uh, we have no king but Caesar. You know, so they really go far in their downward trend. 
This parable is, uh, excuse me, this is the second parable with interpretation given by Jesus. That's uh, the second thing there. This is the second parable, and there's only two. This is the second one of them that Jesus actually gives a very detailed explanation of what he was trying to get across. I want us to look at the parable itself. Okay, let's just read it here. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. Starts this way, another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? And he said unto them, An enemy hath done this. And the servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, no, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn." end of the parable. Now, this parable, as you note, is continuing a theme that you have in the beginning of the, these first few parables in the kingdom parables. Two weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the wheat, or excuse me, the sowing and the soils, the four different soils uh, that you had. Last week, we looked at the seed that grows by itself. Okay, that was from Mark, but it was at the same time given. This week, you just continue the same thing. You have someone going out in a field, and they're sowing, uh, and things growing in the field. So you just kind of continue this theme of parables along this line. The unusual part of this parable is that there is the appearance of an enemy. You haven't had anything like this at this point. It's just go out and grow the stuff in the field, and we're looking at what happens to the plants that are out here. But what's introduced in this one, that suddenly you have an enemy that's involved in this story person that is not uh, normally a part of the thing. Uh, this enemy comes in uh, during the cloak of darkness and sows weeds, and I will interchange this because we you don't understand what weeds are, but tares, okay, they sow tares in the field, uh, and you'd say, well, how would this happen? Uh, you have one night where the seed, or the day the seed's thrown out there, and you have night seed just scattered around again, and they look the same. And that's uh, what happens. You go, okay, so then what, what occurs further along? It's this. Weeds, uh, wheat grow up together at the same time. However, when the wheat begins to show its grain, while the, or the wheat begins to show its grain, while the weeds do not have, and I put it this way, they don't have fruit. Okay, the head of the, uh, where the, the grain should be at, there's nothing there. There is a weed uh, called, and, a, and this is the blank that's there, it's called darnel, D-A-R-N-E-L. It's very similar to looking like what weed is like. It just doesn't have grain in it. And uh, it's familiar worldwide. This is not just merely a uh, Midwestern thing or that. It's, it's 
found universally, well, universally, earthly, terrestrially, uh, across uh, our globe that you find this kind of thing that looks like uh, the real thing until you look at what it's actually producing. Now, the ones working in the field want to remove the weeds before harvest time. Okay, they've got time on their hands. What are you going to do? You're still waiting for stuff to grow. Okay, well, we could do uh, some work here and take care of the weeds that are there. Uh, The sower declares that this would be dangerous because wheat could be, and I put it this way, could be damaged or misanalyzed and destroyed. Gave the illustration this morning. I think it's probably a good one. Uh, as a child, one of the things I had during the summer to do was to go out and pull weeds out of the uh, flower beds that we had in the backyard. And what my determined to be weeds and what were actually weeds were two different things sometimes. You know, it's it's green, but it doesn't have anything growing out. There's no flowers on it. it. Must be a weed. Pull it up. And then mom would come out and go, what did you do? Those are whatever, you know, those are the violets. Well, yeah, okay, you know, should have figured that out. But you go through and what you can have when you pull up weeds, and you may have this be the case, that it's planted next to something else. And as you pull up the weeds, it also pulls up the roots of the other things. And so you can have damage like that. And uh, so you can have two things go on here. You have growth that is hindered because of damage being things pulled up around it, or that you have someone like me going into the field and going, huh, looks like uh, weeds to me, let me pull it out. Oh, it looks like more weeds to me, and pull it out, and, and uh, let's throw it in the fire. And they're taking stuff that is the real thing, the good stuff, rather than the bad stuff. And so the solution is this, let's wait until harvest time and pull this at the same time because then you can tell because one's got grain in it and you can tell the grain is there the other one doesn't have it so and at that point you're not looking for the plant to grow any further because you're pulling both out of you know the ground you're harvesting them not really pulling them out of the ground at that point you're just cutting things and pulling them you're not looking to save them after that other than to get the grain out of the wheat and so he says let's gather at the end what we'll do is we'll take the wheat to harvest you know they would have to go and put it where the chat or the the um come on wheat threshing floor there we go uh the threshing floor and you take the other stuff and burn it You'll get a nice warm fire during harvest time in the evenings there and, and uh, supply it with all these extra weeds uh, that are there. And so at the end, you have that last par- paragraph there. In the end, the harvesters come through and the harvest both uh, at the same time, they remove the weeds to be burned in the fire. Okay, that's the parable. So what happens is this, is that the disciples uh, hear two more parables. Okay, we'll look at these parables next week, but you have the parable in verse 31 of the grain of mustard seed, and verse 33, the leaven in bread, and you have these two parables, and then Jesus sends away the crowds. 
And so when you get to verse 34, all these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spoke he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which is spoken by the prophets, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been secret from the foundation of the world. And Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. I mean, they're kind of guessing uh, while they're waiting here, they're sitting here going, what did he mean by that? And I'm guessing there's probably some discussion amongst the disciples as they're going to the house. What did, you know, what did we, I don't know, what, what is he talking about? I don't know. So they come in and go, could you explain this to us? And what you find with the explanation is that the Lord is very direct in his explanation. Look at how he answers in verse number 37. He said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. The tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. So if you look at your chart on that second page, it's pretty easy to figure out what things are there. Okay? The sower of the good seed is the son of man. That's a little bit different than what we've had before. It's people sowing seed, but here it's the son of man sowing in this field. Okay, the field is the world, which is a little bit different because the last few times we've been talking about the seed, the field is the heart. Now we're talking about the world in general. Good seed equals the sons of the kingdom. The weeds equal the sons of the evil one. The sower of the weeds equals the devil. The harvest equals the completion of the age, okay? And you put that in because this is going to be important. A little bit of confusion that comes up when people talk about this, uh, and it's due to, due to some of the translation we have here. Uh, and then the harvesters are the angels, okay? Now, one note. You've seen, if you read through this, you saw the word world four times, Once in verse 35, once in verse 38, once in verse 39, and once in verse 40. When you see it in verses 35 and 38, the Greek word behind it is the word cosmos. Uh, It is referring to the world that we walk on, all the activities and events and all the people that are involved in it, it's referring to that. When it says in John 2.15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Okay? It's saying don't be taken by the activities of this life and the things of this life and everything that takes place on this earth that is around you. Don't get taken by that. That's the word that is there when it talks about the field is the world. Okay, it's the people here living in this life with all the activities that are going on. Verses uh, 39 and 40, where you have in verse 39, it says that the harvest is the end of the world. And then in verse 40, you have the end of this world. It's the word ion, which is the translated age. Okay, When you talk about the end of the world, we're not talking about the end of this system. It's being blown up, and there's nothing here anymore, and there's a new heaven and a new earth and heaven. What it says is this. It's the end of this age. 
You know, what's the age right now? Well, it's the age right now where we're functioning before the kingdom shows up. And you say there's a lot of things going on. There's a church that's here that's the age, sometimes called, people call it the age of grace. Uh, there will be a time where the church is no longer here before that kingdom gets set up. You've got seven years of tribulation before the Lord comes back. But it says this, it's at the end of this age, because we still have an age on earth that's the kingdom age. For a thousand years where the Lord rules and reigns on the earth. So this time period, so it's a, that those, the end of this age, and you've seen that phrase elsewhere, okay, the completion of the age. Um, let me give you the quote, Matthew 28, 19, 20, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I command you, and lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. It doesn't, it's not the world we're talking about here. He's not saying to the uttermost parts of the earth, because there are other passages that say this, but what it's saying is it's taking to you to the end of this age. This is your job. The time period where you go out and tell people and you go after people is this age here, because when you get to the kingdom age, Jesus will be here. And people will be able to go and see him and talk to him and question him and know him if they want to. It's not us having to go out and do it. He's available for communication because he's here on earth. So um, as you look at that, that's important because it's going to play a role in the way this is interpreted because there are some people that get confused on this. Now, underneath that paragraph, it just simply says this. The point is, at the completion of the age, the wicked will be removed before the kingdom is established. That's what this is telling us. That when Jesus comes back at his second coming and he comes and he steps on the Mount of Olives and he wars with the nations there, there are going to be people that aren't at the Battle of Armageddon that couldn't be there due to other things going on, but they will be brought before the Lord and they will be separated out. We'll talk about this uh, at the end of our notes here, but the Lord will separate out the nations that do not love God and remove them and not allow them to be in his kingdom, whereas there are going to be other ones that are ones who love God, they love his appearing, they love Christ. These are individuals that will enter physically directly into this kingdom to enjoy this, to have children and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren. They're the ones that are going to enter into this kingdom and be a part of this. The wicked, they will be cast out into a place of fire, as you have, it's a place, as you read in verse 40, the tares are gathered and burn the fire, so shall it be at the end of this world. Um, and uh, you look at this, there is in verse 42, cast in a furnace of fire and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Realize this, that individuals right now that are separated from God uh, and die in their sins uh, their soul and spirit goes to a place of fire. Uh, in your scriptures, if you could read the, the Greek behind it, it's typically referred to as a place of fire or Hades. We would know it as hell. There's another place that Jesus talks about quite often, and it's a place called Gehenna. And Gehenna refers to the lake of fire, which is the permanent place that people will be because one day their bodies will all be resurrected 
everybody's body will be resurrected. But the ones who have rejected God, their body will be resurrected and will be cast in a lake of fire along with their soul and spirit after the great white throne judgment. So what it's talking about is that, okay, you have people who are not permanently cast into the lake of fire. These are people just like now that die, their soul goes to hell waiting for that great white throne judgment yet to happen. Now, last uh, thing here. You do have the statement that the righteous will go into the kingdom of the Father. They will shine as the sun. And any Jew reading this would go, oh, I've heard this phrase before. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3 is where this comes from. And as you read Daniel 9, 10, and 11, you get to chapter 11 and you have this individual who is this wild, crazy, beast-like individual, an antichrist who stomps on the world for a certain period of time and then it will stop, that he will no longer be ruling. Daniel chapter 12. You go, what happens in Daniel chapter 12? The Son of Man comes to rule on the earth for a thousand years. And when that uh, occasion happens, Daniel chapter 12 uh, declares this, and let me just read how it is stated there directly. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, it says, At that time Michael, the archangel, stand up. The great prince would stand for the children of the people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was seen. There's a nation even that same time, and at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found in the book. Okay, he's basically saying there, and you get to the end of the tribulation. All of a sudden, here's what happens. Uh, verse number 2. Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and to everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. Okay, the sun. We're not, you know, when you talk about the firmament, you're talking about lights in the sky. What's the brightest one? The sun. They're going to shine like the sun. And they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. So the question is, is when these people enter the kingdom, are they kind of like shining? Um, Have you had people shining before in the Bible? Moses. Moses. Yeah. Can you talk about some that uh, were actually transfigured and they were bright like the flashing of the sun? Moses and Elijah, as they talked to Jesus, you had them bright like this. So do you have individuals that enter into this kingdom and are as bright as the sun? You know, they have a brightness to them? Maybe? So um, that is the, the, the statement that's there. This is not just a random statement the Lord pulls out. He goes, okay, here's what happens at the end of the tribulation. You have people that enter into the kingdom and they shine as the sun. Now, <clears throat> here's where it gets interesting. What are the applications from this? I mean, why, why did the Lord go, okay, I've got to tell them this parable? You know, it's, it's, it's a little confusing as to what's going on here. I'm going to start with what it is not. 
trying to explain. And this is one of the misinterpretations that has caused some difficulty in church history. In the application, this parable is not a statement against church discipline. Okay, that's the blank there, discipline, the church discipline. This is not a statement against church discipline. This is how some groups have applied this parable. They read this and they go, oh, well, there's people in the world that are saved, people that aren't, and you're not supposed to remove them. You're not supposed to go, okay, that person's unsaved, that one is, uh, is saved and the like. And uh, that, this is not a parable about being, you know, not doing church discipline. Okay, and here's why. <clears throat> Understand what is being applied here. Church discipline is not removing people from the world. Okay? Just imagine this, okay, you got church discipline situation where you know something happens and you go okay uh you're no longer in the church and then we take them outside and shoot them whoa 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 you know what they're not acting like a believer they don't look like one so we're going to go ahead and execute them now understand you had a whole segment in church history that did this Remember what the Roman Catholic Church used to do in a thing called the Inquisition? You aren't part of the Roman Catholic Church? Well, guess what? We're going to excommunicate you, kick you out of the church, and we're then going to execute you by the flames or by hanging or by other things. And you're going, well, what were they doing? Because they were still taking up the principles of Old Testament Israel where you got rid of people who were like this. And we'll talk about this in a second. But they were continuing to do this. And if you have this kind of interpretation, it's going to lead to some strange things. But you're not removing people out of the world. You read this parable, you're removing these things out of the field, out of the world. You're getting rid of them. Uh, this is not about church discipline. Understand that church discipline is to be done with caution. That's uh, the blank there. But it is something that is expected both by Christ and the apostles. Okay, church discipline is something that the scripture says a church needs to do. I mean, you get Matthew chapter 18, just five chapters after this. The Lord's the one who introduces this idea. And you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and the Apostle Paul saying, you need to remove this member out of your church. Okay, um, here's uh, the next paragraph. The church does not have the responsibility of identification and permanent removal of unbelievers out of this world. This kind of attitude has led to all sorts of sinful and harsh actions, i.e., as we've already stated. What, what is the purpose of church discipline? Okay, it's not, the, the goal is not to go, okay, who do we get to remove? No, the goal is, what can we do to restore this person to others that they've offended and to God? They're not in a right relationship with God, and the whole purpose of it, with one person going, and then two people going, then you got the church going to them, and going, listen, this isn't the right course of action. Uh, the goal is to restore them, not to remove them from the church body, though that sometimes has to happen. 
because they've ruined the testimony of Christ, they're unrepentant of a, a gross sin in the community uh, and the like, and it's just like this person does not represent what Christ is like, what his body is showing, and so we remove them outside the body. Does that mean that person's unsaved? Maybe or will be saved. You know, in that case, you're going, well, this person, though, is acting like one who's not saved. And hopefully, as Paul says, that there's enough uh, harshness that when this person's given over to the devil, in the sense of that the devil gets to do whatever he wants without the protection of Christ and the church, that this person goes, listen, I don't like this. I want to come back. So this parable is not a statement about church discipline. What it's talking about is just what we have in the world right now. We in the world right now have saved and unsaved people. Now, the other reason Jesus had to give this parable is because he's talking to, at this point, the letter of Matthew is to whom? Jews. And Jews, as you read the the Old Testament scriptures, they had the Mosaic law that gave them what they were supposed to do with their government. They had civic laws. And the civic laws, sometimes, as you have in your note there, because Christ was uh, the end of the Mosaic law, uh, the nation of Israel, or excuse me, nor, because Christ was the end of the Mosaic law, is the nation of Israel responsible to execute those that commit adultery, idolatry, and rebellion. I read through Leviticus, parts of Deuteronomy, and there, you know, you sin against your parents, and you say, how is this, you know, that threat, you know, you disobeyed mom and dad, time to go out and stone you, you know, let the ravens eat out your eyes. You're going, what? You know, I don't like this. But there is the occasion where you had someone in the nation of Israel that would blaspheme against their parents and would be an open, violent rebellion against their parents. And what the community was supposed to do is to go, listen, this is not right. There's children are to obey their parents. This is the fifth commandment. And this person is blatantly destroying the structure of society. You take that person out and you stone them. Or perhaps you had this go on where you're um, walking around and you come by somebody and sit down and you're having a meal with them. They go, hey, you know what? Over the hill tomorrow, they're having this great feast to Baal. It'll be fantastic, grand time. You know what? All sorts of people there, and uh, they'll offer sacrifices to Baal and whatever, but it's just a good time. You want to go over there and uh, be part of the worship over there? You know what Leviticus tells them to do? You don't even, don't even go with that, and you don't go with them, but you go to the community and go, listen, this person's promoting the worship of false gods, and what the community was supposed to do is to take that person and stone them. And even in certain cases of adultery, you'll find this to be the case. You go, well, why is that? Because in that society, the family is extremely important, and what you would have is the destruction of society if you lived like the Canaanites did surrounding you. You wouldn't have a strong family unit. The nation of Israel had capital punishment. And what the Lord is now saying and communicating to the Israelites because Jesus is going to be the end of the law, the Mosaic law. He is going to, by his life, fulfill the law, thus ending the need for some of those civic and civil laws that are there, that there is no longer going to be the need to execute individuals. 
So you have this. These commands were given to the nation when they lived uh, in the promised land, but now they're entering into a different time period of God's dealing, and you don't have to do this anymore. And so this is kind of something new for the nation of Israel. You're not to go about and remove people that you go, well, this person's definitely not a part of the kingdom. Get rid of them and get rid of them. So that's, you know, this is kind of why the Lord's giving this, okay? He is giving this, especially because you've got Israelites that are listening to this and going, well, if we're going to set up the kingdom, we've got to eliminate people out of the kingdom that aren't a part of the kingdom. And that may mean that we just take them out of this world, kill them. This parable, second to last paragraph there, this parable is a statement about our present age on earth. There are both those who believe on the Son and others that do not. Okay, there's only two groups in this world. Okay, there's not a third group, fourth group, fifth group. No, there's only two groups. And you can identify in one or the other. Okay. But as you go through and you think about this, those that do not believe will be like their master, the devil, the one that sowed them. He is the master of deception. He's been deceiving people for 6,000, 7,000 years now. He can be an angel of light to deceive people so that they don't see the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us, um, and that he will do that, he can do this. Or excuse me, he does that and blinds the eyes. In chapter 11, verse 13 is when he's talking about that he becomes an angel of light and even so can his ministers become angels of light. And the Apostle Paul goes, you've got false apostles and false prophets and preachers whom the devil is uh, using to deceive people, and they aren't followers of God, but they certainly look like it because they are like the devil. They're angels of light, and they can sound just like they're supposed to sound, but are drawing people away. And so you look at, and I was just thinking about this earlier uh, or yesterday in looking at this, the Apostle Paul's really got a lot of material about the devil and his deception in 2 Corinthians because he's dealing with people who are deceived and going, listen, you, you've, you've believed some things you shouldn't be believing. You've had people come in and say certain things and you've bit down on this truth and it's not right because these individuals are using the tactics of the devil who's the master of deception. So, as you think in this world, you go, can I identify who's saved and who's not saved? The answer is, you have no idea. You go, well, can I identify them by their fruit? Yeah, you can get a general idea that, okay, the person probably is, but I'm not doing anything as far as harvesting. You know, I'm not taking people out of this world and whatever. I'm just going, okay, probably saved. I'm taking it at face value by testimony what they're saying and what they believe and what they say. Okay, they're a Christian uh, and this person doesn't even know who God is. Okay, probably unsaved, more than likely. The last paragraph that we have here in the notes is this. Jesus, when he comes in his kingdom, will divide out those that are his from those that are not. Okay, this is his job. It says we get to the end of the age and this is when it happens. We'll divide out the tares from the wheat. 
those that are his in this world will enter directly into the kingdom. I'll step back for a second. What about me? I'm going to already be raptured. I'm going to be in heaven bodily. Do I get to be a part of this kingdom? Well, you're not necessarily enjoying going into this kingdom physically directly. You'll be a part of it, being able to see what's going on and helping the Lord take care of things in this kingdom. But you're only going to have a certain group of individuals that go directly in and can have children. Okay, these people who go into the kingdom are the ones who are going to have children and great-grandchildren and great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. These people will go into the kingdom directly. Okay, that's what I mean by this. Physically, directly, they go into this to enjoy this kingdom like everybody else has enjoyed all the kingdoms before. They have children and all of this. These people go directly into this kingdom and enjoy life here on earth uh, like it should be. But when you go um, and, and talk about this, those that are not his will not enter into the kingdom but will suffer eternal punishment. Jesus elaborated on this event in the story of the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And I have the note there. So you, that's the last thing there, the sheep and the goats. Ever hear about this where you have the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left? Well, you know, the goats, you know, bad, mean, you know, goats, nice, you know, whatever. Um, but he uses the illustration. But that's not talking about the great white throne judgment. It's talking about when you read through 24 and 25, the Lord's saying, when is the sign of my coming? And he's giving all sorts of stories about the signs of his coming, when he's going to come back uh, to earth to rule and reign, and he's telling his disciples this, and you get to the very last story that he tells, and it's the story of the sheep and the goats, and it's the dividing of those that will enter into the kingdom and those that won't enter into the kingdom. The nations will come by, and uh, certain ones will go in, and certain ones will not. And you go, well, what is this? It's talking about this judgment just before the kingdom starts. In fact, if you read through Daniel, you'll find that there's at least 75 days between when the Lord comes back and the start of the kingdom. At least 75. You go, what's that for? Getting everything set up. You know, getting the temple set up that's supposed to be there where Jesus will rule and reign. And people are helping be a part of that to, to build that. And the nations come by and you're cleaning up from all of this before you enter into the kingdom time. There does seem to be a little bit of development here between the Lord physically coming back to earth and the kingdom actually starting where this judgment will take place so that people do not go into the kingdom. Yes? So the church is raptured out before the kingdom starts. We will be a part of the kingdom because when the Lord comes back, we're riding with him. Um, but as far as enjoying the kingdom as a normal individual would right now, no, we're, we're, we're different. We got a, a, a resurrected new body uh, that doesn't have you know, sickness. We're not giving in marriage and being married at that point. So, yeah. When you read, read the account, it seems to be, it's not just the nations, it's how individuals did this. It's down to individuals. So, you know, it's not like, okay, you know what, you were in Russia, you couldn't have been saved, whatever, too bad, out. You know, this type of thing. Um, 
But it is called the judgment of the nations. The nations seem to go by, and there is a division even amongst them. Sheep, goats, sheep, goats. And uh, the factor is theirs, and the judgment of the sheep and goats is, did you do certain things to help? You know, when I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was sick, did you, you know, these are characteristics of people who are reflecting their king, reflecting Christ. Yes? No. No, it's, it's, it's giving the characteristics of the individual who is a follower of Christ. Because it'll say at the end, I never knew you, which means the fact is you weren't saved. Yeah. So, yeah. So anyhow, so that's, that's that judgment. Okay, so at the end, you have this harvest separating out. Okay, you're going into the kingdom, you're not. You're going directly into the kingdom, you are not. And then the kingdom starts. So this is a new thing for them to understand. Because as the Jews, they thought, hey, we're just going directly into the kingdom and there's nothing required and who cares? We just go right into it because the kingdom comes. No, you have to be a follower of God. You have to be one of His to actually enter into the kingdom. If you're not, eternal fire. So yeah, a lot there. But that's what he was trying to get across was that, okay, it's not your responsibility to decide who's in the kingdom. It's God at the end when he comes back to go, you're going into the kingdom, you're not. So it's not your responsibility. So, yeah. All right. Yes. Thirteen, fourteen hundreds. In that time frame, about twelve, thirteen, fourteen hundreds. You have the Inquisition, especially fourteen hundreds. You had in Spain the courts of Inquisition, is what they would call them, where they would have people going around looking for people who were not following the Roman Catholic Church and their doctrines. In some cases, they were just reading their Bible and they got in trouble. Okay. So yeah. it wasn't what at the time when, it, when you started to have the, 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 the beginning of the. You had some. You had some counter. Yeah, you had some counter Reformation where it was. Well, you're not a part of the Catholic Church. Okay. Well, we're going to execute you. And then you had these wars between the Protestants and the Catholics, which you know, okay, was a you know, some cases, you know, you're not part of the kingdom, so we're going to make you know. Was in the 14 and yes. Yep. Yep. So yeah. So it is sad that that happens. You know, you think about this, you're, you're, you're hoping that people get saved, so why would you be executing their life so that they couldn't get saved? That's right. Not giving them a chance. Not giving them a chance. You know, God's the only arbitrator of whether we live or die. And, um, yeah. So, wow. yes. Question? It's, it's, it's talking about the age of the, 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 the age that we're in right now is really the age of the Gentiles. We're still, the Gentile nations are having reign and rule and they will right up until the Lord comes back. But the church age ends at the rapture. It ends at the rapture. So that's, that, that, the, church is, the church gets snatched out, but we're still in this age where the Gentiles are running everything. And, uh, and we're talking about kingdoms here. So the Gentile kingdoms are still running everything until the Lord comes back.
Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yeah. It's 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 going into the millennial kingdom because it's it's talking about what are the signs of your coming when you come back to rule and reign, and that 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 one's dealing with that aspect of it. So yeah, when you get to the sheep and the goats, it's not it's not referring to the great white throne judgment. It's referring to who gets to enter the kingdom. And so so when we get to the ten virgins, that one's referring to also the same thing. Are you prepared when the Lord comes back and you go into the kingdom, the celebration, the bride, you know, the, the marriage feast that goes on there? Can you be a part of that? Can you apply it to us to be ready? Yeah, well, you know, we're always looking for the Lord to come back, but it's, it's specifically in that case, it's being referred to the fact of, are you going to be ready when the Lord comes back? Are you prepared physically? So, 